Welcome to Kansas is Lit on KSF Radio. I'm your host, Waskar Medina, Lit Editor for 785 Magazine and the current Poet Laureate of Kansas. Today's guest is Eric McHenry, and here's a bio from Eric McHenry. Eric McHenry is a seventh-generation Kansan and a fifth-generation graduate of Topeka High School. He teaches English at Washburn University and is a past Poet Laureate of Kansas. His debut poetry collection, Pot Scrubber Lullabies, received the Kate Tufts Discovery Award from Claremont Graduate University in 2007. His most recent book is Odd Evening, Way Wiser, 2016. His poems have appeared or are forthcoming in Three Penny Review, The New Republic, The Times Literary Supplement, 32 Poems, Field, Harvard Review, and Poetry International. Eric McHenry, how are you today? I'm doing very well. How are you, Oscar? I'm doing fine. I'm, I'm having a, a great day today, and I'm so glad to be on the air with you and having this conversation. Thank you for making time for us today. Oh, it's such a treat for me, too. Thank you for including me in this program. So school started. Uh, you're a professor at Washburn University. How's that going for you? It's going reasonably well so far. Uh, three of the four classes that I teach are online. I only have one in-person class. And I think all four of them are going fairly smoothly. You might get a different answer from my online students, particularly. <laughs> they might they might say this is this is tedious and insufferable, but but I can't see them rolling their their eyes, you know, on, on the computer screen there so clearly. So I, as far as I'm concerned, the classes are going fairly well. The kids have been really good, good sports and are working hard, it seems to me. And uh, that's been gratifying to see that the transition has been fairly smooth and people have been pretty adaptable. So speaking of, of transitions, uh, you were the Poet Laureate uh, before Kevin Rabus. Um, how right. has that time away from the Poet Laureateship um, worked for you? I think that, you know, I'll be interested in hearing how you feel about it, too. My sense was that two years was a really good duration for a term as Poet Laureate, that you come into it with a lot of energy and you throw yourself headlong into all the travel that the position requires and all the school visits. And you get kind of accustomed in the first year to being a more public person than you're used to being, you know, as a poet. And in the second year, you've got it kind of figured out and and you're really rolling. And but by the time the second Second year winds down, you know, it's not you're not exhausted, but you're feeling ready for a return to a little bit uh, more familiar, typical routine, I guess. Or I suppose I was. So, um, yeah, the transition back to uh, just, you know, ordinary, not quiet, but anonymous Eric was <laughs> a pretty a pretty welcome one for me. And, and I think I'm getting more writing done now than I did as Poet Laureate, too. So yeah. I believe that has been the challenge uh, getting getting time to to write and not only advocate for for poetry but also create your own poetry i right. found a difficulty f with balance and, and that aspect of, of the poet laureateship myself yeah your head is in poetry so much of the day as poet laureate you know it you know ordinarily you're doing something else all day and then maybe you've got a little free time at the end of the day where you can turn to poetry but if you've been immersed in poetry all day then sometimes you want to turn to NBA basketball at the end of the day or something else like that. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So you're originally from Topeka. It, you said you went to, well, I've read uh, Topeka High. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. I'm the fifth in a long, long line of uh, folks in my family to go to Topeka High going all the way back to the 1880s. How's it feel to be teaching uh, at a university level in, in your hometown? 
It's uh, wonderful and strange, uh, you know, vertigo inducing. I Washburn is, you know, three blocks from the house I grew up in. It's one block from my grandparents' house. My dad was on the Washburn faculty when I was a kid. My great grandmother was a graduate of Washburn from the, back in the 19 teens. Um, and so there's this odd sense of inevitability and of having come full circle, but also it's something I never expected would happen. I left Topeka in 1996 and, uh, never thought there would be an opportunity for me to return. And so being back in my hometown is, is terrific and, um, familiar and unfamiliar. And I've tried to write a lot of poems about that because it's a subject that's sort of endlessly interesting to me, the way that your hometown, when you return to it, both is and isn't your hometown. <laughs> that is interesting. For me, I'm someone who's traveled quite a bit, but have decided to make Topeka my home. So that's an interesting uh, perspective of uh, coming home. Did you feel you had to uh, put roots down again or did you hit the ground running uh, when you arrived back in, in Topeka? I suppose a little bit of both. You know, I had lived in Boston and then New Hampshire and then Seattle. And so Topeka culturally is, you know, different from those places in addition to being different geographically. Uh, but it was also very familiar in a lot of ways. I think when you're from a place, that place kind of, at least in my case, it creates a sense of sort of a norm or norms. And then everything else is sort of a, a deviation from that somehow. Like New England, it wasn't that it was cold per se. It's that it was colder from, it was colder than Kansas and therefore weirdly cold to me. <laughs> Seattle was weirdly rainy. Uh, you know, both places were weirdly progressive in their politics. I, my own politics are progressive, but I'm, I'm used to being at more of a, not a necessarily a minority in that sense, but not a part of some overwhelming majority. And so so there was an, an interesting sense of returning to, ah, yes, this is the norm, you know, from which all of these other things have been sort of experimental um, deviations. And and I connected with old friends when I came back, too. And it was sort of amusing because some of them had no idea I had been gone for 13 years. <laughs> it's just, oh, Eric, haven't seen you around for a while. What have you been up to? You know, um, and uh you know, made made some really good sort of new old friendships, if that makes sense, you know, like connecting more closely with people whom I've known since childhood uh, than I had when we were all growing up in the town together. And so so that was a treat. But uh, yeah, the the strangeness of being back was was challenging too. just sorting out what my identity was, you know, in this place. And I had changed jobs, too. I'd been a journalist for a long, long time. And this was my first teaching job. And so uh, there were lots of new questions that the world was posing to me every day. And is so there a uh, line for that? Is there like, you know, journalists, say they're searching for truth, but I also believe uh, poets are. Uh, could yeah. you speak on that? Boy, that's a really interesting observation. Yeah, I I've always felt like kind of an obsessive digger into subjects, you know, that I get interested in them. And there's a sense that like, there's a bottom of this that I could get to if I dug, you know, furiously enough. And in journalism, you may actually be seeking answers that you want to inform the public about. Or if you're doing, you know, I did a lot of features journalism, but even in features journalism, if I'm writing a profile of a musician whose work that I admire, or, you know, or a scientist who's doing interesting research, it's what you're digging for is sort of the essence of that person or that person's story, you know, what, what makes them compelling and someone that you want to write about. And in poetry too, there's, yeah, there's this, you know, the Seamus Heaney line that, you know, 
I'll, my pen, I'll dig with this, you know, that, that mm. this is my, my inheritance. The idea that uh, you're um, interrogating yourself and your own life and trying to get to some germ or essence that's at the heart of it, um, that kind of all the noise and distraction and, um, you know, accreted, um, I don't know, superfluities of life throw at you that, you know, keep, stand between you and understanding what's true about yourself or your life. So, yeah, they both really are a kind of research and reporting. I think there definitely is a through line there. You know? Would you mind sharing some of um the truth you found in, in your poetry with us today? <laughs> I'd be I'd be delighted to, or, or try anyway. I, I can't promise truth or, or even poetry, but I can certainly promise attempts at, at both. So, um, so uh, I've got a my newest poem here. I have no idea how it'll sound because I haven't read it aloud before, but um, I got interested a while ago in the subject of spite architecture and spite houses. I don't know if that's a familiar term or not. It's no, kind of obscure. But if you look it up on, there's an interesting kind of Wikipedia entry about it. Uh, basically, the idea is that there's a, a type of house called a spite house, and it's usually a house that was built to spite someone. That is, like you got you got the short end of the stick in your family's will. And so you got a small crummy piece of property that no one ever thought you'd want to build anything on. And so you end up saying, well, to heck with you. I'm going to build a house here just to spite you. Or, you know, you've got some enemy who lives nearby. And so you build a giant house in order to take away his view, uh, you know, of the of the ocean or something like that. <laughs> or they're, they're really interesting looking spite houses because they're often built on really like narrow pieces of property. So you'll have like a four story house that's only six feet wide, you know, just in this in this really narrow area there. But the idea of devoting that much energy to this grudge that you have uh, and letting it be embodied in that way was really interesting to me. And so I was thinking about that subject and I ended up with this, this poem that's called Designer's Showcase Tour of My Spite House. The most common complaint is the oppressive closeness of the walls. Extend a forearm if you're feeling faint. A lot of people lean, but no one falls. A spite house, you'll remember, is designed for occupancy, but with someone other than its occupant in mind. Traditionally, it's a coddled brother, litigious neighbor, or romantic rival. Although you wonder with some of these newer Pinterest models from the spite revival if it's like any viewer. All architecture is performative. Think of the thousand pressures that dispose you not to live like this, the normative influences. I'm here in spite of those. I gave some thought to what I could abide, then read the memoir of a lighthouse keeper and realized my lot would be as wide as anybody's if my stairs were steeper. Unable to build out, I built straight up into my barony of air. Those windows were my masterstroke. They tilt both ways to throw uninterrupted glare. Each wall bears something greater than its load. You couldn't build a house this tall and thin today, and I can't bring it up to code. My grudge has long since been grandfathered in. Some local preservationists are trying to buy me out, but this is where I live. My coddled brother's masterstroke was dying and leaving me with no one to forgive. Wow, that line um, about 
you can't build up so you um, you can't build out so you build up um, uh-huh. <laughs> that, is, uh, that is absolutely wonderful so do do you feel you know like a lot of us are 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 in our homes all the time um mm-hmm. is there you know does any of it feel uh, like you know the, the closeness of the walls with having to stay home so much right now is that's it a fascinating like a spite house that's a fascinating question yeah that's that's i hadn't thought of that you know at all but um yeah it, it sure is a, a coincidence if it is a coincidence that you know i ended up writing that poem at a time when you know we're all in kind of a um externally imposed semi or quasi lockdown you know like that's that is really really interesting i mean i think that i had had an interest in the subject and in writing about it before um you know covid came along and you know the environments that we inhabit and the way that they the shapes of those environments and the way that they shape us is, has been an interest of mine for a long time and old grudges is a theme that has run through some of my poetry too so um in in a sense it's all of a piece with stuff that i've written in the past but boy i bet that it um now that you pointed out to me, I bet that it really informed what I chose to emphasize as I was writing that poem, you know, the sense that I'm just inside a lot more now. Uh, yeah, thank you for asking that question. That's really, you know, an interesting way of looking at the poem. It's, it's incredibly, uh, I mean, I feel really lucky to be hearing new work uh, from you uh, and, and you, you having it shared with us here. I really do appreciate that. I feel really lucky. I really do. Oh, I feel lucky for an opportunity to share it. Thank you. Do you mind sharing more poetry with us today? This is one that I've been doing a lot of research recently. I I find that as, um, you know, news and national and international developments become more um, overwhelming, uh, I, I like to Um, turn to historical research as a way of gaining a broader perspective and also as a kind of escapism, I suppose. And there are a lot of really, really fascinating recently digitized historical archives online that you can get pretty easily access to now, um, including historic newspapers. And so I've been rooting around and digging around in those. And this is a poem that kind of came out of just one little you know, research jag that I was on at some point. It's called um, For Victor Massey. For Victor Massey. Nobody knows this, but your father once hit Stacker Lee upside the head with a paving stone. He was better known for hitting the basso notes in Nearer My God to Thee at the funerals of his friends, and for hitting the ribs, kidneys, ears, and jaws of other Missouri middleweights, and of your mother, his mistresses, his dog. A pug who thumps women, the post-dispatch called him. Pug for pugilist, I gather, from the Latin for clenched fist. He always managed to talk himself clear of consequence, with some glib alibi the judge was amused to hear. He never hit you, as far as I know, which isn't far. Instead, he carried you into the backyard because you'd vomited again and shook you clear of your little life. If that's a child, a neighbor told his wife, the man has killed it. And so he had. You were a bright but delicate lad, allegedly, mild with a mysterious softness to your bones that reads like rickets to me, but wouldn't they have known? They fed you only soft, mild things, rice and potatoes, 
which you ate readily, according to this suspect, rubbernecked reportage. The deputy coroner struck a line through congenital debility and scribbled cause of death unknown above it. You giggled and suffered for 14 months and haven't suffered since the summer of 1892, little Victor. Senior to my great-grandfathers, you are what? Only an antique baby, broken, and the imperceptible ripples you must have sent across the surface of things, wherever they went. They buried you in Potter's Field, universal for a stranger's grave, although the two words together evoke, for me, a garden. Nothing connects us but having briefly lived. I'm setting this down, as they say, because I'm the only one who knows your name, and it has become a burden. Thank you so much. I, I want to say uh, the the research and, and the work, is, is that a, a big part of your process uh, going back? Uh, do you find a lot of inspiration in, in, in historical events or figures or characters? That's an interesting question, too. I'm hoping that it becomes more a part of my process. The, the research that I was doing that led me to this was actually for what ended up being an essay that I wrote, um, you know, about it, just a historical subject that I've taken a lot of interest in and that these digitized archives have allowed me to explore and I think make some sort of new discoveries about. And I wasn't necessarily optimistic that all of this research would yield poems for me because it's so esoteric and specific and, um, you know, it's, it's sort of hard to contextualize. But, but that poem kind of exploded out of me all of a sudden back in the spring, which doesn't happen with poems for me very often. Usually there's a lot of laboring and white knuckling and sweating, you know, that goes into the production of a, a single poem and it takes weeks or even months to finish. And, and that one I wrote in a day or so. And, um, and it, it was a kind of, it was a relief to experience that sort of writing energy again. And so I'm hoping that maybe, you know, with this research, I can continue to, um, you know, parlay it into new, new poems that have a similar energy. Um, I've been interested in, you know, history, history and in doing historical research for a long time, but, but I don't think I have written a whole lot of poetry drawn directly from it. Um, but, but I'd love it if that would change. <laughs> yeah. Do you ever foresee yourself um, writing on a particular historical subject or, or a time period as a collection of work? That's an interesting question, too. It's possible. I, I think, you know, more likely I might find a historical subject that I want to write a, a prose nonfiction book about. Um, but but it's possible that if I got, I mean, as obsessive as I tend to be, that if I got really immersed in a particular subject and had a lot to say about it that seemed to want to be said in verse rather than in prose, that uh, a, a whole collection could be built around that. Yeah, this that poem was spun off of research into the historical origins of the Stackerly or Staggerly legend who's this figure in African-American folklore um, and uh, and who really existed, you know, who, like many figures in African-American folklore, was a real, real historical figure that you can now go back and read newspaper articles about from the time that he actually lived. And so um, that there may be more more poems to come from that for sure. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> look forward to hearing those. Thanks. Would you mind sharing one more with our audience today? I really enjoyed our conversation that we're having. 
I did too. Yeah, this is this is a treat. Um, poetry is such a solitary pursuit so much of the time, and you forget that you know others are out there pursuing it in solitude simultaneously. And it's just great to connect with folks who grapple with some of the same issues. And uh, yeah, I'm just I'm just so pleased with this opportunity. Thank you again, Oscar. Yeah, I'll read I'll read one more. Um, here's a, a poem in three sections that I wrote a few years ago about um, it's about being a parent, I suppose. I I tried to I thought it would be interesting to write a poem that kind of begins as a children's poem, but then evolves into a poem that addresses or speaks about the child to whom the original children's poem was being read. I may be explaining this a little bit too much, but in any case, if it's a little bit confusing that this starts out sounding like a children's poem, but then becomes something else, that's what I was was after. So this is called Light Blues. And again, it's in three sections. Light Blues. One. What was I supposed to do when the traffic light turned blue? Should I stay or should I go? Should I turn on the radio? When lights are yellow, red, or green, I know exactly what they mean, but what about a light that's blue? I looked around. Nobody knew. The car behind me popped its trunk. Another car released a skunk. One driver clambered up and stood like a surfer on his hood. A family opened all their doors and pulled them back and forth like oars. I rubbed my eyes and tried to think. Then, finally, the light turned pink. Two. You seem a little underwhelmed by ten. Your orthodontia makes you lisp again. In dreams, you lose your latchkey and your hair. The neighbors leave a corgi in your care. We've taught you not to cuss and how to cuss. You're learning more from others than from us. When people haven't seen you for a while, your beauty makes them smile, which makes you smile uneasily. Already, you can see that smiles are an unstable currency. You make me laugh, but then reject my laughter. You think I'm giving you what you were after. You'll turn 11 soon, and then 16. Stoplights will see you coming and turn green, which, as you know, is yellow mixed with blue. Tell me again what you intend to do. Three. Well, I had a little baby, and she always used to swear she was not a little baby, and I guess she had me there. But she'd been a little baby, and you know how you forget how the people that you know aren't the people that you met. We used to watch the sun go over and over, always in the same direction, like a ball in some impossibly one-sided game. One cloudy morning, we stayed in, and she invited me to play a single game of hide-and-seek, and it continues to this day. And now I don't see much of her because she takes so long to find, because the front door is the only one she ever hides behind. And everybody in this suburb is so voluble and strange, and the streets all run in circles, and the stop signs never change. And the world keeps getting newer, and the sun keeps getting high, and if her eyes get any bluer, I won't know her from the sky. That's absolutely gorgeous, Eric. Thank you. Thank you. That is, that is a great way to, <clears throat> to end our conversation. Um, 
Is there anywhere people can go to find your work readily or to purchase books from you? Oh, thank you for asking that too. Yeah, I, uh, my books are all from Waywiser Press, um, and that's just Waywiser W A Y W I S E R Press. So if you Google it, their website will come up. The website is Waywiser Press dot com, um, and they're also available through you know Amazon. And and uh, if you're in the area and listening, I highly recommend a place like the Raven Bookstore, uh, which can put my books in your hand quickly and in a most uh, friendly manner <laughs> so again thank you for joining us thank you again waskar so much this is a real real pleasure and i'd like to thank our audience for joining us today if you'd like to be a guest on kansas is lit email me at lit785.com and stay lit kansas mm-hmm.